Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. In like the most positive sense oh, yes, of yes, that. Yes, yes. Scary. Yes, because that sounds <laughs> like, right? <laughs> We're just happy to have you back. Paul, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning to you. Um, thank you so much for taking us along this morning and whatever it is that you are doing. Um, you know, rise and shine. Let's give God the glory today. Where in the word are you today? I'm in Luke chapter 17. Why is that? Well, it's the 17th day of December, and we are reading through the Bible together in the Gospel of Luke during this month of December. And so it's December 17th, and so no hard math. We're in Luke chapter 17. It opens with um, Jesus saying to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. And I think, well, there you go. That seems um, right. Temptations to sin are sure to come. I don't know about you, but... um, this time of year, the temptations multiply. One of my temptations is to like over, overspend on gifts for other people. I am not a gifts person. I, uh, I, I am hard to buy for because I'm not a gifts person. And I recognize that. So I just apologize in advance to family and friends who think they have to get me a gift. You don't. I'm an acts of service person. That is way higher uh, in terms of my love language. But the temptation to send for me, one of them at this time of year, huge, is to overspend on gifts for other people. I just go ahead and confess and acknowledge that. Um, Also, overeating, overeating things that I know are not good for me. Um, There you go. Temptations to sin are sure to come. And one of the things that Jesus says here to his disciples is pay attention to yourselves. Uh, And I think that's a, a fine reminder to us Um, when we might be tempted to focus on the, you know, what we consider the obvious sins of others and fail to just acknowledge what's going on in our own lives. Later in this passage, um, we have, uh, later in this chapter in Luke 17, we have Jesus uh, passing between Samaria and Galilee. And so that's just like right on this, uh, right on this edge of people who would be historically Jewish and people who are Samaritan and Jews and Samaritans have literally, quote, nothing to do with each other. But here on this little seam, um, he's passing between Samaria and Galilee, and there are lepers. And these 10 lepers who stand at a distance, and in, in, in Luke chapter 17, it says, says they, lift, they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they recognize who he is. They call out to him. And they ask for mercy, and he delivers. He delivers. All 10 of them are cleansed. It's interesting here that he says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, the only people in that group, the only people among that 10 that would be going to show themselves to the priests are the Jews. So there are clearly Jews in this group of 10 lepers. And yet, as we follow along... um, 
one returns to give thanks. And Luke notes he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he confirms to the man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The people who recognized Jesus for who he was and got from Jesus what they wanted didn't return to give him thanks. But this foreigner did. The one person who, by the way, could not have gone to the priest had to simply just acknowledge the healing had come from God and that Jesus alone was the person he could return to give thanks. All right, so there are some seriously good news this morning. You've heard it already. Uh, The 12 remaining Christian aid missionaries who were kidnapped and held for ransom in Haiti have been released. That good news is, as always, tempered by seriously bad news, not only here in the United States but around the world. And so I want to continue to be praying for um, people in places and spaces where we might not be able to physically reach them, um, but we can certainly reach them with the power of prayer. So let us be, you know, like hashtag pray the news today for each person whose name we know in the news from, you know, in our own communities and around the world and in those regions um, where we don't know the names of the people, but we certainly know the difficult circumstances they're facing today. Let us pray that God would use these events to awaken people to the overwhelming need for a Savior, even the one who comes this Christmas. Dr. Stephen Grusevich is joining us next. I, um, I am concerned about families who have kids with autism and the challenges, the particular challenges that they face during this season of the year. And so Stephen and I are going to talk about what each and all of us can do um, this Christmas for families with children on the autism spectrum. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Stephen Grosevich joins us again today. Uh, you can find him at Key Ministries. Um, Stephen, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back, Carmen. Merry Christmas to you and your uh, team. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and your team as well. Let's um, let's talk about the numbers. Every one of us knows a family in, in our family um, or in our community, in our church, who has a child on the autism spectrum. Talk with us about the numbers we're facing in the United States right now? So there were some recent statistics that came out. These are updated statistics um, from Centers for Disease Control that show that at this point, one in 44 kids in the United States um, has an autism spectrum disorder. It is four times more common in uh, boys than in girls and so that the most recent statistic is that one in 27 boys will be identified with autism at some point in time. That's, um, that's really significant and remarkable. And I think there are probably people who are saying to themselves, well, then it's overdiagnosed. Um, you know, people just can't control their kids. These are just little boys that are being boys and can't behave. Um, but there's more going on here. And for those of us who have a child in our family, 
um, you know, somewhere on the autism spectrum or with an autism spectrum disorder, like we know this is not about discipline. Um, this is actually about a child who in one way, shape or form is living in a bit of a different world than the rest of us. Well, this is a fairly profound disability karma. And, you know, with the work that we do at Key Ministry, and again, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist who's, you know, a Christian, you know, one of my concerns is that the families of kids with autism get a chance to be a part of a church. And there was a large study that came out, this is about three years ago, looking at um, over a quarter million interviews with families from around the country that were done as part of the National Children's Health Survey. And one of the things that we know is that families who have a kid with autism, it's 84% less likely that they will ever set foot in a church um, as a result of having a child with that disability. Um, Mental health disabilities are a significant barrier as well to church attendance, but but the the most significant disability out of any, again, physical or developmental disability that serves as a barrier to church participation and attendance is autism. And so it's something that, again, that, you know, that those of us, you know, that those of us who, you know, are Christian um, need to give serious thought to because of the impact that this has, not just on the child with autism, but on their entire family in terms of faith development. If you want great resources and equipping in this, um, visit keyministry.org, key, K-E-Y, keyministry.org. Stephen, give us, um, let's start down the list of just some observations that you would make as a Christian to those of us who are Christians and want to be uh, creating spaces and providing or taking down those barriers to church attendance or participation for families. Um, uh, You know, let's just start that list and then we'll take a break and come back and, and offer people more tips for making Christmas autism friendly. So one of the first things that I think is important here um, is that the churches have some sort of an intentional plan to be able to welcome and include um, families who are impacted by autism. And so when when we think about this and we think about so, well, what are some of the things that would get in the way um, you know, of a child or a teen with autism being able to fully participate in church? Um, the biggest issues are that, you know, first off, you know, one of the, you know, one of the, you know, sort of two core issues or deficits that we see in kids on the autism spectrum is that they struggle with social communication. And so mm-hmm. churches are intensely social places. And, you know, you think about, you know, how important it is to be able to pick up on facial expression body language, tone of voice, expression, you know, um, inflection of voice. And so that, you know, so if, you know, if you're a kid who struggles with those kinds of issues, or you're an adult who struggles with those kinds of issues, you know, assimilating into church is going to be a very challenging thing. Um, The other piece of this, or a second piece of this is sensory processing. And while we know that sensory processing differences are common among folks with with the full range of mental health conditions. Um, This is a particularly notable issue among folks on on the autism spectrum. So that they um, might be more sensitive to, you know, loud noises, um, smells, 
multiple conversations going on at one time in, in, in a relatively confined area. Um, people touching one another or hugging one another. Um, a lot of folks are going to be sensitive to that. You know, and so that, you know, when you think about like how, for example, like the, you know, the children's ministry environments or the student ministry environments are designed in a lot of our churches, it becomes very, very difficult, again, for many kids you know, who have some of these issues to be able to, to enter into those environments with their peers. Now, we've historically thought about this, and, and, and part of how folks in the church um, over the last 10 to 15 years have looked at serving folks is by having some sort of identified special needs or disability ministry. Well, if you take a look at the statistics and the stuff that's come out most recently, um, only one in three kids on the autism spectrum have a significant intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. So that a significant more majority of these kids have normal to high intelligence. And one of the things that we're speaking into, you know, in terms of the training that we do with churches, is that, that for a lot of these kids, it may not necessarily be specifically their autism that keeps them and their families out of church. It may be the comorbid mental health conditions that kids are vulnerable to um, on the autism spectrum, particularly kids on the high end of the autism spectrum. You know, the issues with anxiety, um, especially social anxiety, issues with obsessive compulsive disorder, issues with ADD or ADHD um, that, that contribute to some of the challenges that they have. And so, hey, Stephen, we, we, oh. we got we to we gotta pause and take a very, very quick break. Um, but I know people are furiously taking notes right now. And so I want to remind them that they can find resources at keyministry.org. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Grisevich. We're talking about the issues we face in our own families, but certainly in the family of faith as we seek to um, have our worship and church environments be more friendly and accessible to families who have a child with autism. We'll be right back. All right, we're talking with Dr. Stephen Grisevich, and we're talking about all of those kids and families, um, not only in our own families and in our faith communities, but in the culture who um, who have a child or a teenager on the autism spectrum. Um, and what does it mean for those children and those families in terms of what we are offering and how we function inside of our churches? Very likely they will never set foot in a church. What happens when they do? Um, do we have an intentional plan for that? What is your inclusion ministry um, strategy at your church? How much of your church budget is actually dedicated to that? There's tons of resources related to all of these things at keyministry.org. Um, Stephen, let's uh, let's go back to our uh, to our list of things that we can do, you know, to make Christmas specifically autism friendly. I guess you know, like take us to Christmas Eve worship service um, and and help me as a person in the pew, you know, be welcoming and not sort of like weird toward a family who has a child with autism. <laughs> Does that make so, sense? <laughs> give well, me the yeah. do's and give me like the do's and don'ts. Well. Well, I think that the the first off, one of the things that um, 
is a developing trend. And, and one of the things I'm proud of our home church doing is that we are actually having a sensory friendly Christmas Eve Eve service. I um, love that. Specifically for families who, you know, who have kids who, for whatever reason, struggle with sensory environments. You know, so at that particular worship service, the music may be more acoustic. Um, you know, the lights may not be quite as bright as they would at a traditional service. And there's lots of room for kids who need to move around or kids who need to like you know to flap their hands or um you know to be spontaneous to be able you know to do so you know so i think that one of the you know when you talk about well if a family happens to show up and 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 if you have a kid who's obviously maybe struggling with self-control you know kids who are having you know issues you know maybe you know struggling with like the level of stimulation they might be experiencing at your church. I think the most important thing is, you know, to, to make sure that we do what we can. So the families aren't welcome. So the families feel welcome and don't feel like they are their child or like the center of attention. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, one point I was going to make in that when we start thinking about how you include folks on the higher end of the spectrum, is that what the kids that I see, what they most want is that, that they want to be treated like everybody else. And, and, and one of the things that they will flee and that their families will flee is anything that directs attention to them as being different. You know, so again, if you have a kid who, you know, is very spontaneous, you know, is, you know, is, you know, talking, singing, moving around during the service, just help their family to feel welcome, you know, smile. I mean, it may be, you know, maybe we're a little distracted for, for a bit, but, but, you know, it's critical that those families, you know, have the opportunity to experience the love of Christ, to hear the gospel message and to be in a place where they feel um, wanted and accepted. Um, Some other things for churches to think about. Um, One of the things that's an extraordinary blessing, and we have two fabulous like-minded ministries in the country. Um, One is called um, Nathaniel's Hope out of Florida, and the other is 99 Balloons in Arkansas that have developed nationwide networks of churches that are doing free respite care for families who have kids with disabilities, especially families on the autism spectrum. Um, the, the strain on families, especially this time of year, um, you know, can be overwhelming. And, and parents who have kids on the autism spectrum have a very difficult time being able to find childcare. And so that, you know, churches that are able to offer families different sorts of respite opportunities, that's an incredible blessing. And, and, and again, I would refer folks to either, um, you know, either Nathaniel's Hope or 99 Balloons if they would be interested in seeing those, you know, types of services develop, you know, at their church. You know, so, again, you know, that. having the opportunity that, you know, for example, you know, to have a great, you know, opportunity for kids to be cared for, you know, so that parents can go out and get a chance to like do some Christmas shopping for the other siblings, you know, or that mom and dad can have a night away, you know, to be able to enjoy one another's company, you know, or, you know, or simply to, you know, simply to get a break, you know, from the, you know, from the 24 seven kinds of needs that a lot of these kids have from a care and support standpoint is, you know, is, is, is critically important too. So that, um, you know, I think that, you know, it's, you know, through offering respite, 
through making people aware that that we're going to be intentional in terms of creating you know sensory friendly environments and doing what we can to support families that also helps to overcome um one of the other barriers which is which is social isolation with a lot of these families you know if mm-hmm. you know if the parents don't get an opportunity to get out and do things with their friends and neighbors they're not coming in contact with people who are going to invite them to be part of church and and i think that from a return on investment standpoint what we also have to think about here is that by offering supports and being intentional about welcoming kids with autism we as a church earn the privilege to be able to minister with, you know, their brothers and sisters who are neurotypical, you know, their moms, their dads. And so it's not just about including the child with autism. It's about, you know, it's about um, creating environments where entire families who otherwise wouldn't get an opportunity to hear the gospel, to come to faith in Christ, you know, and to use their gifts and talents in terms of, um, you know, growing the church and, you know, extending the love of Christ's kingdom. You know, it's about, you know, it's about the families too. And it's not Mm -hmm. simply about, um, you know, creating, you know, creating great experiences and welcoming the child with autism themselves. I'll make the observation, Stephen, that, um, and I think that there are people who maybe they don't have direct personal exposure in their own family, to a child who is not, as you describe, neurotypical. Um, And so they don't know, like the kid that's wearing the headphones at the restaurant or in your worship service is not necessarily not listening to what's happening. They're actually, that's actually um, a way that they can be there and participating because those those headphones are noise canceling. Those headphones are not, it's not that they're listening to something else. It's that those headphones are providing a way for them to be present um, and actually listening because they're hearing too much if they don't have the headphones on. I mean, like, I just think that there's some simple things like that that lead to less scowling and, and less sort of negative response of Christians who just don't know. They don't know because they don't have in their family or they haven't cared uh, in their own family um, sufficiently about the uniqueness of these children and teenagers. And so there's a lot of learning for a lot of us to do. And the church ought to be, you know, pressing forward. We ought to be leaning forward on our front foot, not on our, not on our heels, but I think we're on our heels on this issue. And so key ministry is just essential for folks to connect with. Um, And so I just want to thank you this Christmas for everything that you're doing and for your willingness to share your expertise with us. It's, it's, it's essential. Well, thank you, Carmen. Yeah, thank you. That's Dr. Stephen Grusevich. You can find him at keyministry.org. Tons of great resources there for you and for your church. So I invite you to check it out. We'll, we'll be right back. <laughs> did you, um, did your parents hide your Christmas gifts from you when you were a kid? Mine did. Um, and then my mom realized that, you know, I, I was on to the hiding place. And so she started wrapping them and still putting them in the hiding place. And then she would discover that I was unwrapping them in advance of Christmas. So, yeah, I was that kid. Um, who were you as a kid in terms of Christmas and your anticipation of it? What's on your Christmas wish list this year? Um, are you adding things to your Christmas wish list this year that are actually 
for others. That's one of the things I'm trying to think about and think through. Um, as people say, you know, what can I get you for Christmas? Or, you know, what, what could we do? I am, I'm trying to inspire a gift beyond me, like something that would really serve someone else. And so one of the things we're doing right now is the great giveaway. And at three o'clock this afternoon, three, three central, um, here on the Faith Radio Network, I'm going to join Susie Larson and we're going to do the great giveaway. Bill Arnold will be there as well. Um, and so if you haven't engaged yet, let me encourage you to go ahead and do that. You go to MyFaithRadio.com and join us in the great giveaway. Uh, if you're already engaged, then now's the time to sort of report back. And you can do that by texting us um, your great giveaway testimony or story. Or you can call and leave us a message with the same. The number is 877-933-2484. How have you already participated in the great giveaway? Um, And if you haven't already, go ahead and sign up so that this afternoon you're eligible for, well, the great things we're giving away. Next up uh, is going to be Dan DeWitt. He and I are going to talk about the sad gospel of Charles Dickens. Yep, it's a tale of two cities. We'll be right back. Mom and Dad, tell me, what was the last thing that caused a fight between you and your teen? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston, parenting today's teens. Moms and dads who have teens living at home know that the season of life comes when conflict seems to be the new normal. Conflict's not always a bad thing, but when you take a step back and think objectively about the issues you clash on, can you really say it's worth the emotional energy? Many parents feel the teen years are the time to squash any sign of rebellion or misbehavior. I'm all in favor of taking action when a teen disobeys, but I also watch well-meaning parents who take every event, no matter how small, as an opportunity to lecture, and these lectures may turn into a fight. Is it really worth it? Limit your arguments to things that really matter. Learn how to get your teen back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. is here. He um, is a professor and he's super busy right now. And so uh, just thank you, Dan, for joining us. I know that you are up to your ears in papers to grade and end of semester things to be doing. So thank you for not being Scrooge-like or Grinch-like with your time today. And those are our topics of conversation. Dan DeWitt, what is your favorite movie version of Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol? Oh, my. Okay, so my favorite. It's a new one. And great to be with you. My pleasure. And, um, and you know, how much fun to just stop and talk about some of our favorite things for this time of year. My favorite version is one I just watched, although it's been out a few years, and it is The Man Who Invented Christmas. Mm. And it tells, it's, tells the backstory of Charles Dickens and how he came to write um, A Christmas Carol. And so um, as, he's, as he's going through the movie and he's kind of like— coming up with this writing project, he'll all of a sudden have the idea for a certain character in the, in the story. And then they'll like come into, you know, they'll come into existence and like follow him around the rest of the movie. So it's really fascinating. It's about Charles Dickens, but it really does retell the whole story of A Christmas Carol. All right. So let's talk about Charles Dickens. Um, and let's talk about what you describe at theolatte.com um, as the sad gospel of Charles Dickens. What does that mean? 
Well, Charles Dickens wrote a, um, a gospel of Jesus, a paraphrase for his kids, and he really didn't want it to be published. And so he told his kids he didn't want it to be published. And um, But a later grandchild, I believe it was, I've got the post open in front of me now, eventually felt like he was like liberated to go ahead and publish it, and he did. And it's pretty interesting. But one of the things that really caught my attention is at the back of the book, he has these prayers that he had written for his children to, to pray. And one of them, and I'll just read it, he wanted mm-hmm. his kids to pray this. O oh God, who has made everything and is so kind and merciful to everything he has made, who tries to be good and to deserve it, God bless my dear Papa and Mama, brothers and sisters, and all my relations and friends. Make me a good little child and let me never be naughty and tell a lie, which is a mean and shameful thing. Make me kind to my nurses and servants and to all beggars and poor people, and let me never be cruel to any dumb creatures. For if I'm cruel to anything, even to a poor little fly, God who is good will never love me. And I Mm. pray God to bless and preserve all things this night and forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What a horrible thing to pray. Wow. Wow. Um, so there's a lot there. I, I will confess that um, I was I was hopeful that, you know, when we start talking about the prayers that people write for their children to pray, you know, we would be talking about a bedtime liturgy that would remind us of God's presence and his goodness, um, that no matter what we've done uh, or left undone, he loves us, that we can rest in him, not just in this night, but um, but always and in all ways, like I was hopeful that's the kind of prayer we'd be learning to pray. That's not what's here. No. And, um, you know, it's a very works-based, um, you know, understanding of God's love. And but I just think of a kid praying that at night thinking, you know, I pulled the wings off of a fly. And whether or not, you know, flies are cognizant of the, of pain or anything like that um, aside, you know, what kind of kid's not going to mess up in some way? And to think, God, who's good, doesn't love me now. Um, I, I just, it's hard to imagine a kid like kind of resting peacefully, thinking about the goodness of God when it's completely contingent upon them um, really having moral perfection. Mm. Um, Dan, when you think about this season and what you intentionally impart to your children, um, you know, when, when I guess when we think about like redeeming this notion of looking back and looking at today and looking forward, which is really, I think, the thread line of A Christmas Carol. When you consider um, that and your kids, are there, you know, are there some bedtime liturgies? Are there some rhythms in your life and home that you say, okay, I can point to this one thing and say, I feel like this has helped um, the next generation in our home cultivate faith and relationship to Christmas? Yeah, I think, you know, we, of course, light Advent candles, and so we um, try and really um, drive home throughout, you know, the the weeks leading up to Christmas Day that this is really about the birth of Jesus. And so we don't, we don't you know, try to, like, cast shade, <laughs> um, as it were, try and make it look bad that we have lights on our home and that we, we do all these other things, but try and keep bringing it back to that central point. And so on Christmas Day, we'll wake up in the morning— and um, we'll light the last candle, and we'll read the Christmas story together, we'll have breakfast together, and then we'll do gifts after that. 
And so we try to have a lot of different little things that point back to the reason for it, but also to say that um, it get, adds a richness to all these fun things that we do. It's not that we don't do them, but rather that they're pointing to the magnitude of this celebration. It's such a big deal that we give gifts to each other um, because we really want to make a big deal about the, the incarnation. All right, we are talking with Dan DeWitt. We are talking about some things that are posted at theolatte.com which is Dan's website where we, we love to go and find the things that we should be thinking about but probably haven't been thinking about. And so let's um, let's turn our attention in just a moment to The Grinch. Which version of The Grinch is your favorite? And um, was C.S. Lewis The Grinch? That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. I hate people. I hate people. <laughs> In 1957, um, C.S. Lewis called the religious festival of Christmas important and obligatory, but he certainly groused about the way that Christmas was being celebrated. Um, Gift-giving, card-sending, he dismissed them all as a commercial racket. But he also says in the last battle, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. And in Narnia... It was regrettable that it was always winter and never Christmas. So, Dan DeWitt, was C.S. Lewis a Grinch? Well, to answer that, I have to give a really quick personal anecdote. So on one occasion of getting to visit England, I've been able to go just a handful of times and been able to visit C.S. Lewis's church a couple times. And the, the last time I was there, they have a little gift shop, and there was an elderly lady who was mining the gift shop. And I mentioned that I was there because of my admiration for C.S. Lewis, which they fully anticipated because everything in the little gift shop was Narnia or C.S. Lewis. And she said, oh, I remember him from when I was a little girl. And I said, well, what was he like? I mean, (laughs) how amazing. And she said, I just remember him as a grumpy old man. And I, I was so kind of like, you know, discouraged by that. I was deflated. All my enthusiasm was completely um, misspent, it would seem. And so looking into C.S. Lewis's view towards Christmas might be a little bit of an insight in terms of why this lady, who remembered Lewis from her childhood, thought he was kind of the Grinch. Lewis hated the Christmas season. And so one of my favorite (laughs) essays that kind of talks about this that Lewis wrote is um, Delinquents in the Snow. That's the title of the essay, and it's all about Christmas carolers. And he calls Lewis calls them delinquents in the snow, and he says they could barely sing, they don't know the words, and all they want is my money. Okay, so I did not know, let me just confess, that Christmas carolers expected something in return. Like, that just hasn't been a part of my experience of Christmas caroling. And so, um, you know, this this is, you know, maybe a historic reference. But today, Dan, if people come, they're not going to come to my house caroling. But if they did, are they expecting something? I, you know, that I should like know this. You, I feel bad. It's like when you find out you're supposed to like leave a tip for the person who cleans the hotel room. Like I learned that really late and probably not very good at it. But yeah, I, I've, <laughs> the only thing I've ever given them is like a big smile and a Merry Christmas. Or maybe so, a hot cup of cider, but not like... Not not like a gift to their church. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think this is a question that should be explored more fully. <laughs> if you are listening and you have input on this, 
why don't you text us 877-933-2484? Are we supposed to be giving something to the people who come Christmas caroling today? I feel like the people who are listening in Connecticut know the proper answer to this question. <laughs> I feel like the rest well, of us have no proper understanding of this. And if you really want something, don't come to our house at the DeWitt house or to Carmen's <laughs> house um, because we're just not prepared to, yeah. You know, well, let me tell you, was I don't know. I might be house. ready. I might be ready with a cup of um, like hot spiced tea. I but would that might not be what you wanted. Maybe some empty Amazon boxes because we have an ample <laughs> supply of those right now. <laughs> oh, my goodness, for fort building. Um, all right, so. In another um, in another piece, uh, Lewis talks about um, Christmas. Uh, he actually wrote something called "What Christmas Means to Me." What's in What's in that one? So um, Lewis, in that one, he condemns the the season of Christmas time um, for giving more pain than pleasure, for forcing itself upon people. Um, because you know, if someone gives you a card, then you kind of have to give them a card back. So there's this obligatory nature, and then the <laughs> preponderance of like junk. Um, we, you know, we go and buy anything, like some trinket, because we have to give people something, and so it really just kind of puts forward like poor workmanship. Um, and then finally, it was just a general nuisance. So I think when Lewis was probably asked to write that, and they assigned to him that title, they probably were expecting something warm and very Narnian and Aslan to be wearing a Santa hat, and that's not what they got. Lewis said, bah humbug. Okay, and then you have to tell people the story about um, Lewis and his brother, Warney, um, who spent the Christmas holiday with their widowed father and had an argument on the way to church. Can you tell that story? Yeah, so Lewis talks about that, and sadly, we've published, and I say we, I wasn't a part of it, but um, Lewis scholars have published um, the diary of the young C.S. Lewis, which to me kind of seems wrong. Um, but in it, he uh, talks about this. This is why you should when... burn. You should burn all the stuff <laughs> right. that you don't want published yeah. before you die. All of it. That's right. Mm. <laughs> but if someone wants to get it, you could find it on Amazon, all the road before me. Um, but C.S. Lewis talks about he and his brother are walking to church, actually, um, with their father. And they begin arguing about whether or not the sun had come up. And his dad was quite insistent the sun had not come up yet because they couldn't see it. And so C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney were saying, no, it's, we know it's come up. Even though we can't see it, we could see everything else. Lewis would years later draw upon that conversation um, in an, an essay called Is Theology Poetry? And he ends that essay not talking about his dad or that occasion, but drawing upon that memory. And he says, I believe in Christianity, not only because, like, I, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And so for C.S. Lewis, who was really a Scrooge and a Grinch in terms of the season, um, had a very warm heart for the actual incarnation. And so he really argued that we should separate out Xmas, which he spelled with an X, M-A-S. And he said that that really should kind of depict the season and all the trappings, separate that out from Christmas, the incarnation, which for Lewis was how he understood everything, including the human experience. Yeah, there's no question that C.S. Lewis believed that the incarnation, um, you know, was the key miracle of all time. Like, it's not that he didn't believe in the Christ of Christmas. He believed so 
thoroughly in the birth of Jesus. I'm thinking here about what he writes in the grand miracle. Um, yeah. That that it was it, it was the way in which Christmas was made less than Christmas that Lewis grieved. Yeah, I, I, I love the way Lewis talks about the um, incarnation, that that grand miracle of all of human history, um, which, you know, in our day, we tend to focus much more on the resurrection. But, you know, if you read the Church Fathers, you'll see a lot more emphasis on the incarnation and also a whole other conversation, the ascension. Um, but for Lewis, he said it's kind of like the, the incarnation of Jesus is like the piece of a, a missing piece of a novel. The novel really doesn't make sense without it. Um, but you find this missing piece, and someone says, here, I've found it. And the way we would tell if it is indeed the missing piece, Lewis argued, is if it seems to fit down inside the novel and make sense of the other parts of the novel. And at the turn of every page, it's just we find deeper meaning and deeper resonance with this missing part. And for Lewis, the missing part of making sense of the world was the fact that God in his love for us, has visited us in our despair. So the incarnation for Lewis was like that, that missing piece of the story that brought it all together. You can read the whole article, C.S. Lewis Was a Grinch, at theolatte.com. You can check out everything else that Dan has posted there as well. Merry Christmas, uh, my brother and friend. Merry Christmas, Carmen. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. You're as cuddly as a cactus, you're as I hate people. <laughs> All right, um, thank you to each and every one of you checking in on the text line. Um, really appreciate that. Uh, Deb says that she has this uh, prayer that she wrote for her little grandsons who she cares for uh, several days each week. They hear it before every nap or when they have a sleepover at grandma's. Here it is. Thank you, Jesus, for this day. So much fun to learn and play. Now it's time to have a rest so I can wake up and be my best. Call my mind and body too and help me now to rest in you. Amen. Oh, I just love that. Deb, thank you so much for sharing that. I wonder if you have developed a, uh, you know, a liturgy of the home, a way that you either pray over with for, um, you know, or teach your children or grandchildren to be praying, like, right, they're not going to just catch all of it. Some of it we're going to have to actually teach them. And so in the same way that Jesus taught us to pray as his disciples, the Lord's Prayer, how are we teaching um, those around us to pray? And particularly in this season, how are you praying in anticipation of the Advent, the celebration of the Advent of Jesus. And how are you praying for the second Advent? I mean, are you praying, come Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And what are you doing to make that manifest in the world today? We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.